0: I'm Maeve Doyle, and this is A Private View, a show about the art world, the art market, artists, curators, auction house experts, critics, gallery owners. And uh, today we're going to focus a bit on collectors, how collectors can influence the career of an artist. And we can trace that back to Charles I, as a great collector of art who... Uh, fortified his his stature and omnipotence as a as a ruler by surrounding himself with great paintings uh, then we go to more current things where kanye west donates 25 million dollars to james turrell the light and earth artist to finish the Rodin crater in arizona or Jay-Z and Beyoncé, or... Beyoncé actually hired a photographer who was the first African-American photographer to be on the cover of Vogue. So what I'm talking about with collections is making history. And you can be mad at money, if you like. Everybody gets mad at money and the way it's distributed. But when that money is put into the writing and creating of history... It is what changes our society. I'm, I'm thinking today particularly about Peggy Guggenheim, who is, uh, well, she was orphaned as a child. Her father was killed on the Titanic. And she was sort of this, what they call this sad billionairess. What she did is she, in the 40s, paved the way for art dealers, women art dealers in particular, her and Betty Parsons, and they made sure it wasn't going to be an all-boys club. Peggy Guggenheim opened a gallery called The Art of This Century, and that was on West 57th Street in New York in 1942. She had left Europe because of, well, the war and the Nazis... Exiling all the artists, or you know maybe the language is wrong, but as a result of the Nazis and uh, all the great artists left Europe and it made America a better art capital and Peggy guggenheim's gallery was part of that during the day the The gallery acted as almost as a social club where people like Marcel duchamp, ben Man Ray, and uh, alexander calder and Mark Chagall, and, oh, I mean, I lose my mind when I think of the people, Kandinsky, Yves Tangley, uh, Juan Miro, Salvador Dali, they were all dropping in to say hi to Peggy Guggenheim, but not just those artists. Then there was Herbert Reed, the critic, Clement Greenberg. So Peggy's influence on contemporary at Willem de Kooning, Ad Reinhardt, Barnett Newman, Robert Motherwell, Helen Frankenthaler, I could go on and on. Contemporary art history would not be what it is today without a collector who opened a gallery like Peggy Guggenheim. And there's no one like Peggy Guggenheim, so that's even a misuse of words. Peggy then decided when Europe had calmed down post war that she was bored sitting in a gallery and she went back to to Venice and she handed all of her stable of artists over to Betty Parsons who was who had a gallery around the corner. Anyway, she handed them all over and went to Europe, with the exception of Jackson Pollock. She had 18 paintings of his as he was on a stipend, and part of the stipend, paying back the stipend, which I think was $100 $100 a week, uh, was she would keep paintings of his. When she left, she gave away 18 Pollocks, and I think she probably regretted doing that. Uh, Betty Parsons is the great American dealer who eventually represented Jackson Pollock, and she liked to challenge her artists with this question. Uh, I'll tell you the question. You can understand the psychology behind it. She'd ask her artists, what's the difference between cats and dogs? And the answer, cats aren't afraid for their jobs. In other words, she was trying to say to the artists, stop trying to please people. Uh, and as a gallerist, neither Parsons or, nor Guggenheim pandered to their audience. Uh, women collectors and art dealers such as Peggy Guggenheim, Eleanor Ward, Ileana Sonnabend. Ileana Sonnabend, we mentioned the other day when we were talking about Leo Castelli. She was his first wife. They remained friends throughout their career, but she was his first wife. But the women dealers have often been the ones to challenge the viewers. Uh, Their radar and and prescience is legendary. Uh, Not always. Well, I'd say always. Uh, Marion Goodman is another one who stands out. When she started, there were just a few women dealers, but amazing uh, what has happened. Now we have... Uh, Paula Cooper, who I said earlier, Marion Goodman, of course, Sean Kelly Regan of Reg- Regan Projects, Victoria Mare-Rose, Bruce Magers. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. Today we're talking about the narcotic of collecting. How do you get hooked on being a collector? What's that about? Where does it come from? A good art collection is always so much more than the sum of its parts, and this applies with a special force when you apply it to contemporary collections collections are are almost a portrait or a reflection either of their age or of the collector psychoanalysis might say something like collections are a way for someone to compensate for things they didn't have as a child. Who knows, but I think the point of most collectors and people who are buying art is they want to be astonished. They want to be uh, taken through a door that wasn't open to them before and see things differently. Uh, The criteria for buying new art when you take money out of the equation is does it change the way you think and feel? And if you're someone who looks at art and you wonder what it is you like, look for the pieces that challenge you, the ones that confuse, confound, uh, mystify, make you ask questions. Those will be the ones that stick with you the longest. Uh, Just a suggestion. And now that things are open, like the Royal Academy if you book a ticket, uh, I believe the v and I know the national auction houses, walk around amongst the art and uh, see what, what strikes you. Uh, and it won't always be what you think it is. You may be shopping and have a list of things you want to collect just to fill out your collection, but uh, chances are things are a reflection of you. And Now celebrities have the same impact on artists' careers in terms of um, influencing other people to buy and purchase and... um value an artist. They have the same sort of influence that kings and queens used to have. So if you saw the Charles First exhibition a few years ago, and the Vermeers and the Raphaels, the Artemisia Gentileschi's, remember, partially those artists are remember in, remembered in history because a collector like Charles I collected them. Who knows what would happen if nobody noticed these great artists? Would they just... Well, I think we know. You need an infrastructure around you to take care of your work, and that's why we're talking about the art world. That's why we're talking about the role of the gallery, the role of the critic, the role of the curator, the collector, and and now we think of people like brands like Louis Vuitton or Dior or um, Off White, and and their influence over artists' careers and who collects them and what makes them famous. So when I said that a collection, the narcotic of collecting is to build a self portrait of what your principles and values are as a family as an individual, as a couple or as someone who is part of an epoch in time. In Peggy Guggenheim's time it was post-war there had been lots of things going on with Nazis and Hitler and uh, that meant her work was about the freedom of expression. Uh, she really felt strongly that people should have freedom. Uh, we're in a different age now where where Mirakami, cause, this sort of toy-like innocence has come into what is popular and what Michael Caine, Brad Pitt, Jay-Z, Beyoncé, Leonardo DiCaprio, The Beckhams, Elton John, Sean Combs, known as Puff Daddy, Oprah Winfrey, Madonna, have done by collecting art is they've brought artists who may have been otherwise unknown into the, into the radar of people who wouldn't have known them if they weren't following those celebrities. Think about what you collect, why, and do you have a weakness for the narcotic of collecting. I like that phrase. I like that phrase. I remember Beth Greenacre being in. She was David Bowie's collector. And David Bowie had to limit himself to one piece of art a day. Now, I imagine some days he lost his self-control and bought two pieces of art that day. But what a wonderful inner compass he had, knowing that he'd have to rein his desire in. Have a listen to Beth Greenacre. What a wonderful, generous uh, spirit she is. She's now working with the Albright Women's Club on Maddox Street and was in here uh, last autumn to talk about working with David Bowie. Have a listen.
1: By 99, I had met David Bowie. And that was kind of you know, I was in my early 20s. I was a kid. You can't just slip that <laughs> in.
0: We need more. First of all, it's astonishing. I mean, how did you meet David Bowie? I haven't gone to an event and seen Bowie standing there, and I've been going to events forever.
1: No. So how was, did you meet him? It was one of those wonderful pieces of luck. You know, I think there's moments in all of our careers, or we should all acknowledge moments in our careers when we go, wow, that was lucky. And the impact, you know, it was, it was the biggest moment, really, yeah. in, in my um, trajectory, I guess. And I met him via somebody who was already working with him, the brilliant Kate Shatavian. Um, they had a relationship. I'd met her via a friend in the auction houses, and we started working together. Um, and Kate and I yep, started working together in 99. She left the UK around 2000, 2001, if I recall. And I sort of took over the reins, as it were. So I worked with David for uh, up until his death in 2016, so... As you know, he had a fantastic collection. And when he died in 2016, the estate decided that they would sell some of the collection. So I managed and oversaw that sale at Sotheby's, which was hugely successful. And uh, what was unique about that particular sale?
0: Aside from it was David Bowie's, but I'm referring to the hours. 24-hour access (laughs) to Sotheby's.
1: Sotheby's had never seen anything (laughs) like it. Bond
0: Street had never seen anything like it. I know,
1: it was phenomenal. Was that
0: your idea, to keep it open 24 hours? We did
1: a lot of brainstorming around it. And and Sotheby's did a number of firsts, actually, when it came to the marketing and the presenting of the um, auctions. I don't think... I don't think they'd ever done anything like that before. But we had to because there were so many people who wanted to see the collection but also understand David because through his collection you understood him. You understood his personality, you understood his ambitions, his drives, his passions, you know, what really motivated him. And also he used his collection to position himself in the world, to understand his history, his you know his background. Um, and those artists really resonated with him for that reason so it was a really personal way to understand David in a way that most people had never experienced before
0: all the the, this is such a beautiful conversation because all the hairs are. I'm showing you my arm because suddenly when you were saying that it was his way of understanding who he was and and for the world to understand him and if you saw how eclectic this part of his collection was Mm -hmm. it would have blown your mind and and He's known as someone who supports the arts. There's stories that I've heard. I'm going to tell you the stories I've heard about the way he collects. And then you tell me what's right and what's not. I've heard that he collected every day. Every day he would buy some art. That he loved outsider art. That uh, when he sort of changed his life and and was approaching a more mature stage, art was his addiction. Mm Now, that would probably just be a journalist writing something that was catchy and getting people's eye because it's not an addiction. It's something you, you celebrate and, and respect and contribute to. Uh, there's a story he had a relationship with Bernard Jacobson, a tight relationship with Bernard Jacobson. Mm-hmm. Bernard Jacobson is legendary for not being a big fan of the YBA, so there's a conflict there. So take it away. What's right, what's wrong about what I've heard?
1: Well, I mean, I think David collected pretty much as soon as he could. But he very famously said the only thing he ever wanted to collect was art. Having said that, he had the most astounding library of art books. And he collected, he collected ideas, he was constantly collecting ideas and experiences and friendships and relationships. So I think he had a collector's brain and mentality. Was he collecting art every day? There were periods where he would really focus. Because when he dug deep, he dug really, really deep. Um, and he wanted to have relationships with the artists, so he made friends with a lot of the artists. You know, He and Tracy Emin were friends. He and Damien Hirst famously made spin paintings together. Um, Go- Goldie was
0: saying, like, he was quoting things from their time together and how he'd given him advice in his career. Oh, his,
1: I mean, the generosity of Spirit was phenomenal. He would always support artists, young artists and by that I mean fine artists, but also musicians He very, very famously supported a number of great bands and musicians very early in their career. What was his relationship like
0: with you? I mean, what were the guidelines you were given? How How did he... 'Cause one would ask the question, why David Bowie, did he need an art advisor? Not really.
1: <laughs> but he So that's he beautiful did it. He as well. You know, he 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 was his collection was motivated by him and his interests and and by his reading. So what
0: was your job?
1: Well, by the time I came on board, you know, a lot of the collection was in place. We worked on a lot of projects with the collection, getting it out there, getting it seen, filling in a few holes here and there. Um but I would often facilitate loans because the artists that David was collecting were famously unfashionable. Modern British was not cool
0: at so, that point. So name a few just to refresh our memories. So
1: some of the key works from that modern British period um, in the collection would be Lanyon. I was a huge fan of Lanyon, who in my mind changed the trajectory of British landscape painting. But today is kind of seen as rather parochial. I mean... Um, but David and that's was, funny,
0: you wouldn't think of that. You'd think of David being like the Hearst cat. Like.
1: Yeah, but modern British was really what motivated him. St. Ives in particular, so the St. Ives School, so he would travel to St. Ives, he'd walk the cliffs, you know, he'd really put himself in the shoes of these artists to better understand how they, what motivated them, what what made them click. Um, so it's, I think the St. Ives School were really key, a cornerstone for the collection.
0: He was post-war. He always seems contemporary, but David Bowie was post-war. No, it
1: was yeah, and you know, and that's positioning himself in that moment in history. That was his immediate, you know, that's that was the background of his sort of entry into the world.
0: That was Beth Greenacre talking about David Bowie collecting, and uh, one of the artists whose career has been impacted by celebrity collectors, and someone that I'd like. To mention to you today because I just got to know him and his work this week, uh, getting ready for the program, to be honest. His name is Tristan Schoonrad. He worked in the film industry and has worked and does work in the film industry in uh, L Street Studios. His father worked in the film industry before him on special effects and prosthetics. Uh, And he got into a family business. Uh, What happened after working on pictures like Black Hawk Down, Saving Private Ryan? uh, There's so many more, I'm going to forget exactly what they are until I read my notes. But um, he started to notice that the effects of war were seeping into his psyche. I guess you could put that under an umbrella term, life imitates art. He was genuinely feeling the effects, some effects of what possibly war was and started doing plaster casts of children as soldiers. Uh, These, you're on a set all day. Sets and film sets are 12... 14, 16 hours. You get to know the actors. So Schooney, who was born in North London in 1974, has a lot of Hollywood connections, uh, not through thing other than being around them, uh, like growing up in Hollywood sort, sort of thing, but he was growing up on a studio set. So he he was working with special effects and makeup and participating in the blockbusters I mentioned earlier, like also including Troy, Harry Potter, Gladiator, Saving Private Ryan, Black Hawk Down, on and on and on. He worked on Bjork's music videos, uh, just great, great work ethic. So while he was working on prosthetics, he learned the secrets of casting and molding and started making these human-sized pieces, like, like, his nephew, who's now 19, as a character from Where the Wild Things Are. Or his nephew, again, as a boy soldier. And it makes him uncomfortable to talk about the people he worked with, but it doesn't make me uncomfortable. Benedict Cumberbatch was on one of the sets, and collected his work and asked him, commissioned him to do reliefs of his work, so sculptural pieces he could hang on the wall. From there, Brad Pitt, Sylvester Stallone, he started to realize that there was another career for him. So I did a little bit of a QA and a with Scooney. If you haven't heard of him, I hadn't, although weirdly I'd seen his work. It reminded me of early Douglas Copeland work. Uh, I know Douglas Copeland as a writer, but because he went to the same art school I went to, which is Emily Carr in Vancouver, I know his artwork as well. Um, anyway, I DM Scooney, he got back to me, and I went through some questions with him, some of which I'll, I'll read to you. He started, he came to prominence in 2008 with an installation called One Foot in the Grave, I believe there's different answers and I was having trouble with the phone line but it was on Portobello Road and that launched him Uh, he uses now a 3D printer and scanner to create his life life like sculptures I've heard people talking about living with his work is like getting used to having a new fa- family member in the house. If you know Dwayne Hanson or George Siegel's work, you'll understand that haunting quality of something looking so real. Sometimes Chuck Close's paintings can look like that too. He uses materials like bronze and plastic and gold, and there's this ghostly melancholia to pieces that aren't alive but look alive. And um, There is definitely a political commentary here about commercialism, violence, war, um, what commerce means and why people go to war. I would think also of Erwin Worm, Ron Merrick, who just, by the way, signed with Taddeus Ropek, which is terrific, such a beautiful space. Look up Scooney's work maybe you know him maybe i'm the one out of the loop sometimes generationally i miss things some of the better pieces and the titles i know of course you can check out auction results as well god chooses no sides with dark circle bruiser panel boy soldier butterfly kiss union jack boy soldier boots and off-white branding Mm, Damon Alman, who has a lot to do with Banksy, also collects his work. I get the feeling with Schooney, because of his code of ethics and the way he protects his privacy, that he probably knows that whole Banksy street art, Damon Alban Gorillas clan. I wouldn't be surprised at all, but I would certainly say have a look at his work. Oh, by the way, his work is at Maddox Gallery currently uh, in the lower level. If you book an appointment to Maddox Street, go in and walk around his work. See what you think. You've been listening to A Private View with me, Maeve Doyle. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye for now.